Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I come to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Thank you, Stephanie. What we just heard was Paul's defense. He's being falsely accused and he goes toe to toe with each of those accusations with the gospel. So my question for all of us is what gospel do you have? Does your gospel make a difference? Does your gospel prepare you to stand trial? We all have a gospel whatever we want to call it, what impact does it have on your life? What's your go-to remedy for the things that you are facing in life? That there is your gospel. Paul lays his out and he says, mine is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over the years, we have uh, used the definition for the gospel that I keep coming back to, and I've made it available in your notes in the application section at the bottom of the page. If It's on the back side of your handout that you received, along with some other follow-ups, what to do with our time in the scripture this morning and how to take the message with you this week. But the definition of the gospel that we've clung to here is the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection. This is what Paul is attesting to. So that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. 
This is the definition of the gospel, capital T-H-E, the gospel or the good news that our rescue has come in the person of Jesus Christ. So is this the gospel that has transformed your life, has made dramatic changes and had all sorts of implications and has made you somebody different than you were before? That is the question at hand. How can this spiritual truth of what God has done to save us from our sins and guarantee us a home with him for all of eternity, how can this make a practical difference in the here and now? I mean, Paul found one of the most practical applications for the gospel in just standing trial and making it his defense. I am here guilty before you, quote unquote guilty, because I believe the same thing my accusers believe, which is the resurrection of the dead. So even in his defense before the governor, he said, I lean and fall back on the gospel at all times. This is a testimony. It doesn't just end before uh, the council here, but this is a testimony that Jesus had just visited with Paul in the, in the, uh, in the prison cell. Remember in chapter 23 when we were there in verse 11, it kind of slips in there that Jesus came and spent time with Paul, was side by side with him. And he said, it doesn't end here in Jerusalem. Your testimony will go to Rome. So Paul knew he had a tomorrow, but he also knew he had a purpose because he still had a mission to do to share the transformative message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with a broader audience. But I would attest to you that his answering these false accusations isn't necessarily the testimony that Jesus was alluding to. It was more how we saw the passage ending before Felix and his wife Drusilla. In a very Romans 8.28 kind of way, if you know that verse, so many of you do, and we quote it often, which is that, um, you know, I'm going to draw a blank on it just because I'm trying to think of it. We know it so well. What is it? <laughs> Romans 8.28. For those who are called according to his... There we go. I was faking. <laughs> Great job, class. All right, what they were mumbling back to us, if you didn't hear in the back or whatever. I've forgotten again. What is it again? I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. That God uses all the ingredients of our life. He He uses it to his purpose and for our good, to those of us that are called according to his purposes. We talked about it a couple weeks ago that it happened with Joseph way back in the Old Testament, the very beginning of our Bible in the book of Genesis. Towards the end, the whole end of the book of Genesis is about the story of Joseph. God had a plan to save the children of Israel from famine, from starvation. He was going to do it by putting Joseph uh, kind of perched in the position of power in the land of Egypt. They were going to have all the resources to be able to survive a famine. So in order to bring Israel to be able to do that, he put Joseph in a position of being able to invite his family down and say, come down here and uh, and and live. But we know that that wasn't just, he said, uh, I'm going to apply to um, the office of right-hand man in Egypt on uh, indeed.com. Uh, uh, J- God decided to drag Joseph through a whole bunch of turmoil, being sold by his brothers into slavery, being falsely accused of things he didn't do in the governor's household by his wife and all of these kinds of things to land him in that position of power. God was doing all things according to his plan for his purposes and our good. 
We saw the same thing with Jesus when he was on trial and he's standing before Pilate and all of the accusers are threatening him with death and everything. And Pilate kind of leans over to Jesus and says, uh, don't you know I have the power to either condemn you or free you? And Jesus says to Pilate, the only power you have is the power that my father gives you. All of these circumstances, all of these situations answer to the sovereignty of God is what we're trying to say. Paul is now bound under the authority, let's put that in quotes, of Ananias. He's standing before the quote-unquote authority of Felix, but this is all part of God's plan. Not that Paul understands all the pieces, but he's definitely learned to trust and wait and see what God's hand is going to unveil. Ananias is bringing his slick-talking lawyer, Tertullus, with him to go before Felix. They're blowing all kinds of smoke at, at Felix, saying, you're great, we're all in peace, we love this place, your rule is fantastic. They didn't believe it because it wasn't true, but it was the nice things you say in order to get a verdict that you want. When it was Paul's turn to answer, he was like, he didn't blow all that smoke. He said, look, you're in a position of authority and power, so I'll appeal to you. It's your job to govern and rule wisely, he kind of reminds him. So now Paul is at the hands, if you will, of Felix. Going toe-to-toe with these false charges of being pestilent, he was being accused of stirring up crowds. He was being accused of being sacrilegious by profaning the temple. You remember they said they saw him with a Gentile in the court, in the um, public square. And because he was with a Gentile, they said they must have brought, he must have brought that Gentile into the temple beyond the wall of separation where they weren't allowed to bring Gentiles in. So they made that massive leap just because they happened to be in the same space somewhere else. He must be guilty of being sacrilegious, of profaning the temple. Paul says, by the way, the people that were accusing me of that, why aren't they here to really prove it? So he's shooting it down left and right. And then he was also being accused of being seditious. He was causing riots, they said. And this piques the Romans' interest. They are going to protect the Pax Romana. That is the peace of Rome. And if the Jews can't contain these things, and if it's starting to show up on their doorstep, now they're interested because you're you're frustrating us. You're causing us consternation. We have a peace that we want to settle here, and you're messing with that. So we'll hear the case. We'll take up the the cause and 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 try to understand the charges and make a ruling. Paul's defense. And his actions at this moment show his total reliability on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I guess what I'm wanting to get across this morning in our time in the scriptures is this isn't the kind of dependence or reliability that's only expected from an apostle from 2,000 years ago. That these stories are captured for us, that Luke records this so that you and I will, will build a similar, if not identical, reliability on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is enough for us to hang our defense on. It is enough for us to stand the trial of the public square, the trial of our conscience, the trial before our accuser, who is the great enemy, Satan, and say, I have no other defense but the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Because the finished work of Jesus Christ is the only reliable defense that we will ever have in this life. The gospel that Paul is preaching, the gospel that Paul is relying on, 
is a gospel that has no dead ends. Let's see what this means because he's referring here to, I believe in the, in the law and the prophets, he said. They said they caught me uh, profaning the temple, but how did they catch me? They caught, they caught me going through ceremonial cleansing. I was asked, remember this meeting that they had amongst the other believers and the followers of the way? And they said, we think what would be helpful here, while some people are still struggling, they think, Paul, that you're going against the law as we follow the gospel and stuff. What might be helpful is you financially support some of the Nazarite vow rites that some of these men have to do at the temple. That will show the general population around us that you're not anti-temple. You're not against the law. Paul said, okay, I'll do that. And, and Paul, you've been amongst the Gentiles. I know that they're all our brothers and our friends and stuff. But when it comes to the temple, you need a period of, of cleansing uh, before you can enter in. And so we want you to go through that as well. He's, I can do that too. And so that's what Paul sets out to do. And that's where they capture him is honoring the practices of the temple. But the accusation is he's profaning the temple. So it's kind of all over the map. So Paul just stands his ground. He says, this I confess to you in verse 14, that according to the way, that's what Christ followers were referred to as, which they are calling a sect. I worship the God of our fathers. All these people that are accusing me before you, Felix, I'm worshiping the God of their fathers as well. Our fathers together, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. He's referring to the Old Testament or what they would refer to as the Hebrew scripture. Again, just for a little bit of background, we won't spend too much time on this, but the Sanhedrin, that ruling body is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And there's a difference in what they believe. The reason why there's multiple groups. The Pharisees take the entire Old Testament and say, that's scripture. What God has done, we believe. What he says he'll do, we believe in the entirety of that. That's referred to the law and the prophets. The Sadducees said, we'll take what's written by Moses, those first five books, and we'll believe that. That's our scripture. And then the rest sounds a little weird to us. All kinds of prophecies, this, that, and the other thing. They were the, the liberal theologians. They didn't believe in all of the, what they would refer to as the hocus pocus of, of uh, the Lord's hand and stuff. So they did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. You mean dead people coming back to life? That sounds freaky and weird and stuff. No, Sadducees didn't believe that. Remember, Paul used that to his advantage when he was before the, the council and said, I believe in the resurrection. And then they started fighting. There's no resurrection. Yes, there is. Kind of sneaks out underneath them while they're fighting. Not really. So he says, I believe in the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and the prophets. He understands that all that was said in the Old Testament, the, the, the New Testament refers to the law as a schoolmaster. And don't just think of the schoolmaster as the one in front teaching. It's the one that shows up to your house and says, it's time to go to school. I'm going to take your hand and walk you to class. And so um, uh, the, the New Testament tells us that the law was given to us to be a schoolmaster to lead us to its fulfillment, who is in one person, Jesus Christ. So the law is useful, beneficial, beautiful for the fact that it points out how inadequate we are to get ourselves to salvation. It was a schoolmaster, took us by the hand and said, now listen, you're going to think you can do all these things. 
We're going to list them out initially in these 10 commandments. They'll be expounded on and there'll be all this cultural law and all these other things that you'll live by. But you're going to think you can do all these things perfectly. But I have given this law to reveal how perfect I am. This is God talking and how imperfect and impossible it would be for you to uphold that. I just want to mention my microphone's getting boxy feedback up here if that's all right. So Paul is saying, I believe that the law is beautiful and is, is something to be honored and respected and taught because it was the schoolmaster that led us to salvation. Even Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I have not come to do away with it. I've come to fulfill it. A lot of people were thinking Jesus was some rebel. It says, ah, the law, that's old fuddy-duddy. My, my dad was just having a bad day, so he got angry on everybody. I'm coming to show you a new way. That wasn't what Jesus was doing. He says, we have given you the law, we being the triune Godhead. We have given you the law to see that you need me, salvation in me. Paul was able to maintain uh, respect for the practices of his heritage because of the knowledge of their completion in Christ. What did the Old Testament point to? It pointed to a resurrection. Specifically in Daniel 12, we won't turn there, but it it speaks in Daniel 12 in the prophecy of a time where we will be resurrected. Both those that are in the Lord's will and those that are outside of the Lord's will. Some will be resurrected to life everlasting and, and, and bliss and reward before the Lord and some will be resurrected to eternal judgment and punishment. So it's in that Hebrew scripture and Paul's saying, that's what I believe. That's why I'm on trial before you today. In verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. I cry out while standing among them. It's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Paul is using the opportunity of his conviction to bring to the forefront the central theme of Christianity. If you ever want to answer the question, what makes you different from, say, anything else, any other religious practice or faith system or anything, is that we believe that our Savior rose from the dead. That he he lived perfectly and righteously before God. He carried our sins and they crucified him for that. He paid the payment, but he didn't stay dead. It's the only faith that can point to a resurrected Savior. Jesus himself said, they said, how can we know that uh, that, that you're truly from God, that you're the Messiah? He says, destroy this temple, talking about himself, and in three days, I'll I'll raise it up. So resurrection is the central theme. That's why when we're getting ready to celebrate Easter, it's such a big deal for us because it is everything. If we had Christmas with no Easter, we're hopeless. The central truth separating Christianity from all other beliefs is that Jesus rose from the grave. Romans 6 says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I wonder how often you daydream about eternity. 
I wonder how often you think about what it's going to be like when we have no more sorrows, no more cares, no more sin nature that's pulling us back like the gravitational force of this earth. What it's like to have no sickness or death. We're always reminded of it when we sit at funerals together. But how often does that happen? Can you believe that the resurrection and the promise of eternal life and glorified bodies and all these sorts of things is a regular devotional thought that you and I can use as a practice to be encouraged in our faith? And this is what Paul is bringing up. He says, now is the time to talk about the resurrection. Paul, you're on trial. I know for this very reason, because I adhere to the belief that this isn't all I will face. That my body, like my saviors, will rise again. He went before me, as the scripture says, as a first fruits, as an example, as a precursor to the resurrection that I will experience. I was thinking about this a lot lately. I was preparing for an ordination council and looking into a lot of things about end times and stuff and just zeroing in on this fact of a new heavens and a new earth. And for some reason, it was kind of like a breakthrough for me. I've always thought of heaven I've always heard the descriptions and read them in the scriptures. You know, you got streets of gold, you got bliss, you got all this sort of stuff. But when I started thinking about new heavens and new earth, I started thinking about the things I can picture as being redeemed and restored to a place that was far better than anything I could have ever imagined. Thinking about all the places I'd love to see around this world. But what holds me back? Time, finances, all the things of getting through the grind. Uh, All the experiences I would love to just go smoothly, but what gets in the way? Sin nature in each and every one of us or drama or challenge or lack of time and all this availability and to think that when God renews all things and it's new heavens and new earth, that all of that stuff is free to be enjoyed without restriction because everything will bring glory to God and we'll be able to participate in it. I don't know what that's supposed to feel like. It's not ever been a part of my experience. It's not ever been a part of your experience. We always have something holding us back this side of the resurrection. And that will be lifted. C.S. Lewis, of course, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the final book, The Last Battle, appropriately titled, he concludes by giving us a picture of what that could be. And I want this to mess with your imagination a little bit. Uh, The main character uh, is Aslan the lion, who is the Christ figure in the story, as you most likely know. And as he, Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this, the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Can you see how a gospel of a resurrection can uphold somebody like Paul standing before these intimidating authorities who have the earthly power to take his life? And he's thinking, you're threatening me with perfect bliss of all eternity? Do you understand how empty that threat is? 
The gospel has no dead ends, nor does the gospel leave any stone unturned. And we're going to see the message that I believe that Jesus had uh, had prophesied to Paul that he was going to preach in just a, a really short sentence. Go to verse 24. After some days, Felix came, came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So now there's audience with Felix and Drusilla, regular audience. The scriptures will tell us that a little bit later. He had him come back and back uh, over and over again, continue this conversation. And as he reasoned, that's Paul, as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. That's a lot packed into one tiny little sentence. I believe that's what Jesus said. Paul, I have a message for you to send to Felix and sweet little Drusilla that they lack self-control, that there's a coming judgment because they are not righteous before me. And of course, Luke was there to record all of this or at least gathered these pieces so that we also have that message preached to us all these years later. In a, in a saga that plays out between Felix and Drusilla and the kingdom and Rome and all that sort of stuff that plays out like an episode of Desperate Housewives of Judea, we understand that the background between Felix and Drusilla is kind of messy. Can't get into all of it, but let me sum up a couple of things. Drusilla is Felix's third wife. He is her uh, second husband. She's still like I don't know, 20 years old by this time or something. She's very young. She was a um, a Jewish beauty. She was somebody that um, Felix saw. They, they all said that, that like her beauty arrested him and he was like her. And she wanted to climb the ladder. She saw a better opportunity with Felix than her current husband. She said, yeah, I can make the swap and the switch. It's crazy, right? You think that all of this just happens in 2024. Nope. And she is actually uh, probably feeding Felix with a lot of background about the way. This is the description of the followers of Christ. Because her whole family is wrapped up in this movement. Her great-grandfather, the Herod, at the time tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem. Her great-uncle, the Herod, killed John the Baptist. And her father, the Herod, killed Jesus' brother, James. She's all wrapped up in the drama of the way. And so she's letting Felix know, oh yeah, this, oh, we've had all kinds of dealings with them. This is what you need to know. And maybe Felix is like, you mean I can be part of the same history of the unfolding of all this? We don't know what his motivation is, but he's entertained by it. He wants to be in Paul's proximity. He's not willing to let him go anytime soon. He's trying to get the Jews off his back, but he's not willing to make a decision. He wants to warm up to this Paul the Apostle. But in the meantime, Paul says, well, I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity because that's what I do. That's what the Spirit has put me in a position of doing. One time when Paul was writing to the church, he said, don't be discouraged by my chains. Understand that as I'm imprisoned and I'm locked up, I am I have captive audience literally amongst the soldiers and the authorities who have to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's mindset had already been switched. He said, I will take advantage of every opportunity in order to preach the gospel. And again, we have to do a drive-by guilting here for our own conscience. How would our lives be different if we saw every discouraging moment as an opportunity to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ? I know, I'm with you. That's not my first thought. 
It's the kind of thing that God sometimes has to beat into me over time or after I, I've run the, the gamut of, of being discouraged or so discouraged I feel hopeless and I start looking up and he says, I put you here so that you could glorify me. Oh, that's right, I forgot the assignment. Paul was convinced his assignment was always on. 24-7, Paul was ready to glorify God in whatever circumstances. I love how Wearsby kind of breaks down this mini-sermon. He says that Paul's address here to them by dealing with righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment is that the gospel deals with yesterday's sins. It deals with today's temptation and tomorrow's judgment. So I want to break some of these down real briefly. Yesterday's sin is a problem of our righteousness. You and I know what righteousness is, but we don't necessarily use it in biblical sense all the time. It's simply our, our, our sinfulness before the holiness of God, our imperfection before his perfection. That's what unrighteousness is. So our righteousness is being set right with, before the holiness of God. And as we've said, the gospel says we can't do that ourselves. We tried to fulfill the law. We failed at every turn. Think about 10 commandments and think, which one of those have you nailed perfectly in life? I want just one of them off the tablets and be like, that one I've got. He can't find any ounce of sin in me in that one. I don't have it. Every aspect of God's law is something I'm somewhat guilty or majorly guilty of. And so I have unrighted myself before the holiness of God. Righteousness puts me in proper standing with him, but I can't earn it myself. So the gospel message is that there is hope for you. There's payment for you because he, the consistent God of holiness and love, has paid the penalty for our sin. We've gotten away from calling things sin, haven't we? In a heavily psychologized culture, we have all kinds of explanations and labels for things that the Bible calls pretty clearly as matters of unrighteousness. And so we've moved away from it. We have all kinds of labels and disease um, uh, things over the things that God has simply said. These are conditions or results of our sin. For years and years as I've um, been in a, a biblical counseling training settings and We've offered counseling here at Faith, and we're training for even more. Be praying for that. We really believe that this is an opportunity for great discipleship in our church. And so Pastor Tom is leading a team of, of trainees, and we're taking that, that good, long approach to build a counseling ministry here at Faith. And we even are praying that it becomes something that reaches our community to be able to say, you have issues, you have problems, we all do. The gospel has the answers. Come see us kind of thing. And so be praying for that as it unfolds. But most often what we hear is, they don't say it like this, but this is sort of the subtext uh, of this, is that it's cute you think you that the Bible can fix all the problems. It's cute that you think that. But people have problems much deeper than what you're calling sin. And I haven't seen in the scriptures anywhere, nor in our human experience, that there's anything that runs deeper than the problem of the sinful condition of man. It does not mean, as some have mistaken, that that means is that because you have problems, it's because of your sin. It doesn't just mean that. That there is a whole society and a whole cultural um, um, epidemic out there of people that are being taken advantage of and abused by the sin of others. But sin is still the root cause of all of it. And if Jesus doesn't have a remedy, then nobody does. Our hope is that Sin has a remedy in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
So we go to him for the correction to these things. Romans 1 reminds us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The gospel has an answer for yesterday's sins. It has an answer for today's temptation, which we still face each and every day. I told you that Drusilla, Felix's wife, was a cultural Jew. She she knew probably all the commandments. She might have been familiar with the law, but she lived as though God never gave them to his people. And Felix, to uh, be a perfect match for her, was a dirty official who leveraged his power by any means possible, including murder. And so they were a match made in heaven. And, and most likely not feeling the sting of conviction, not necessarily feeling the challenge of uh, their sinful behaviors and all those things. They were caught up in that race and it was just something that became natural to them. We've witnessed it. We've lived it before, right? So we get it. I find it interesting in response here to thinking about Paul's message to them and in, in dealing with the self-control issue that they didn't seem to have is that we live a life to try to control so many things around us. We want control of everything. The way our cars are designed is for ultimate control. The way we manage our careers, ultimate control. The way we raise our families and everything is for ultimate control. And we have that temptation to control everything around us. We come to the end of ourselves and realize we can't. But it's our drive. Yet the thing that we fail to the most is self-control. I want to control everything outside of me. But when it comes to me, don't ask me to discipline myself. Don't ask me to walk away from habits and behaviors and things that are destructive, that don't honor the Lord. That's my free space. I've earned that right. I'm out here spinning all these plates. Don't ask me to. And the gospel has us flip it around and says, look, you can't control all those things. Those things have to be in the hands of a mighty God. But the one thing that you can learn discipline and controlling is within you. I wonder if Paul was working out his material that he had written to the Galatians amongst Felix and Drusilla, you know, and, and he, he, he told the Galatians, he said, but I say, walk in the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. I wonder if he's saying that to them. Go, oh, that's a good line. I'm going to write that down. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. As we said, the gospel answers tomorrow's judgment. So Paul says the gospel message is that we deal with the fact that we have sin that plagues us. We're not shying away from that. We're not giving it some other label. That it deals with today's temptation so that we can have self-control. But it also warns that something ugly is coming if you're not right before God, if you're not standing right before him. And again, we just don't want to think about this. But what we do in this life doesn't escape the wrath of God. We'd already heard Paul preach this in Acts 17. Remember, he's amongst the Areopagus. He says this whole pantheon of gods that you're worshiping, you've you've left one out. You said, in case we've missed one, we're going to worship the unknown God. And he goes, that God I'm going to present to you. And while he's presenting that unknown God to them, he says in verse 31 of Acts 17, He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that's Jesus, whom he has appointed. 
And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And that would cause anybody who's starting to see I'm not good before God, I'm not righteous before God, I should be trembling, I'm afraid of the consequences. And and the problem with leaving this out of our gospel presentation is it doesn't make the good news good. The news of Jesus is good because it saves us from the worst news of all, that you and I were born in our sin and that sin has separated us from a holy God. And when we're separated from a holy God, our destiny is eternity in a place called hell. If you keep that aspect out of it, then the good news is just okay news, but it's not complete news. The reason why it's good, the reason why it's beautiful is because it rescues us from that future if we only receive it. And then the last thing I want to just point out here is that the gospel twists no arms. Felix has a choice here. Eventually, Drusilla seems to drop off the the uh, situation. She had to go get her nails done and her hair appointments and all that sort of stuff. So this whole hearing the gospel and coming judgment and hellfire and brimstone is inconvenient. It's keeping her from her episodes of Desperate Housewives and everything. So she's going to get off the scene of that and she's going to say, Felix, you deal with this guy. And as he's listening, it says Felix is alarmed in verse 25. This word alarmed is similar to what the jailer felt like when the apostles were in prison and they were praying and then the whole place shakes and the doors open. It's the same word and it says he was freaked out too. Difference with the jailer is how does he respond? He says, what must I do to be saved? That fear shook him to the core and he took that fear and said, how do I respond rightly to the Lord to say, I'm undone. I, I didn't know such power existed. Don't, don't, uh, uh, don't leave me and don't leave me to face the, the coming judgment that I would have. Instead, how can I be saved? Felix had the same opportunity. He had the same freak out. But what does he say? Let's catch up on this later. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll call you back. Don't worry, I won't forget about you. At the same time, (laughs) here's some motive. He hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, but that's illegal. He wouldn't do that. People don't do that in the political system. I don't even know why Luke would record that, I say sarcastically. Apparently, the historians tell us it was running rampant. It's against the law, but give us a little. And the reason why he thought that it would come from somebody who was of meager means like Paul was because he had just brought a huge offering for the church in Jerusalem. He even gives that in his testimony. He says, I only came here to give my offerings to the church. And he probably had a huge entourage and all that sort of stuff. So he says, there might be a cash cow in this apostle thing. I'm interested in what he has to say, but at the same time, if there's a little bit of payoff on the side, works out for me too. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. But there's no record of Felix responding to the Lord and saying, I'm unrighteous, I'm unholy, I'm sinful before you, save me, Paul, help me with this. No, he just entertains it to the point where he just blows it off eventually. This is how we let the moment pass by us. We let real life invade. Maybe Felix, at the moment that Paul was speaking, we knew he would have power and clarity, passion and conviction. It probably was reaching him somewhere. But then he thought, I wonder if he's got any cash. 
real life, real temptation, real history, real practice, all that stuff came flooding back into Felix's heart. And then he was like, oh, that's right. I had a scheme here. I'm working. I got to get back to that. Isn't this what we do? We hear something compelling. And in the very moment that we're hearing it, especially the presentation of the goodness of God, and there's something like, man, I think that's where it's at. But I got all these other things that I know that he's not going to allow in my life. And so I got to get rid of that too. I got to push that stuff out. I think often we say to people, hey, don't worry about that stuff. God will deal with that later. And he will. But I think it's okay to have some conviction of saying, hey, following Jesus means I got to let some things go. And if I just sign up without thinking through the cost, Jesus even warns, he goes, who does that? If you're going to build, you don't estimate the cost. Jesus says, I want followers, not just emotional converts, not just people that say, hey, that sounded good, felt good in the moment, sign me up. And then only to get back to real life or have that temptation come back and just say, yeah, you didn't mean it. He wants real followers. And if we're not careful, we let that moment of conviction pass us by. We miss that opportunity, not because the emotion wore off, but because we gave in to everything else that owns us. That's why Paul warns, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There's no guarantee that you're going to return to that place of motivation or surrender at a later time. Maybe this morning you're here and you're not sure what all this following Jesus stuff means. That's okay. You're in a good spot. None of us understand what it all means. We're all growing in our understanding of what that means. But what we do is we come to him with our availability and our desire to surrender to him. Keep leading us, Lord, and we'll continue to follow. Good days, bad days, all those kinds of things. We know that what he's asked for us is anything that we hold on to that takes away from his glory or holds us back from growing in him. So we ask for his grace. We ask for his forgiveness. We ask for his patience in us as we discard those things. And some of those things still hang on and they claw in. But we ask him, Lord, just kind of keep driving those things out. That's what it means to follow Christ. And so if you've been holding off because you've been waiting for a better moment or you think I'll be more in a, I'll be in a better spot to do this commitment thing later. I just got to get a few things off. Understand that now is the time of salvation. You can't put those things off forever. Maybe it means for you here this morning that you give your life to the Lord and you just say, I'm not sure quite what I'm saying, God, to you. I don't know how this is supposed to go, but I know a few things. I know that I'm sinful and I'm separate from you. And I know that you love me enough that you paid for that. So I'm asking you to save me. I'm asking you to be my Lord. I'm asking you to direct me and make me one of yours. None of those words I just said were magic. None of them were the things you have to repeat exactly, but that's the expression of the heart. And then you know what we do sometimes when we do that? We say, I can do that privately. I can do that in the seat that I'm in. I don't have to tell anybody. And then we hang on to it and then we kind of tell ourselves that I'll take this thing with, uh, with following Christ and being in faith kind of on my own terms and in my own pace and everything. And we tell ourselves I can do this by myself. And then it's just not the way it works. I'm encouraging you as you come to Christ, as you give him yourself and you receive all of him, let somebody know. Come tell me. Some people have been telling me that over the last several weeks. They've been stopping me and say, hey, I gave my heart to Christ today. It's amazing to hear. 
It's incredible to be able to hear that kind of thing, not just so I can knock something on, say, hey, we're doing something right, but so that I can pour into you and tell you, look, you're on the right path. This is how we're going to help you get established on your on your feet and in your walk with Christ. But it doesn't have to be me. It can be anybody here that wants to have that conversation with you. We have people floating and kind of roaming and might have a badge on who want to pray with people and they're waiting for those kinds of comments. We have staff here out at the table. Don't leave here having made a commitment to Christ and saying, I'm just going to keep it to myself though. There's no need for that. You'll be far better off when you share it. Let me wrap it up with this. This idea of procrastinating, putting things off. He was going to be all that a mortal should be tomorrow. No one would ever be better than he tomorrow. Each morning he stacked up the letters he would write tomorrow. It was too bad indeed. He was too busy to see his friend, but he promised to do it tomorrow. The greatest of workers this man would have been tomorrow. The world would have known him had he ever seen tomorrow. But the fact is he died and faded from view and all that was left when living was through was a mountain of things he intended to do tomorrow. What difference does your gospel make? Does it give you eternal hope? Does it save you from the sins of your past, present and future? Is the gospel of Jesus, his finished work on the cross and resurrection from the dead, your first and last line of defense? Let it change you from the inside out and don't wait for it to take effect tomorrow. Live in it today. Would you please stand and let's pray together. Lord God, I believe your grace is needed for all of us today. Lord, I believe it wholeheartedly. There isn't anyone in this room that's got it all figured out, got it all put together. In fact, most of us find the longer we do this, the more we need you. We start to see our inconsistencies, our patterns of of sin and our weakness of heart and things. We see it even clearer the longer that we walk in you. So rather than feeling like we're perfecting this, Lord, we're more learning to depend So for the person who's hesitant because they're not sure, Lord, if they're good enough, the person who's holding back because they think they need to clean things up before coming to you, I pray that you would gently but firmly speak to their heart and let them know, Lord, that you're ready ready to receive them now, that there is no amount of goodness, performance, or preparation that will make them any more ready than they are right now. That's where you thrive, Lord. That's where you live. You take us in the state that we are currently in and you make us new. So God, I do pray for the boldness and the courage for many to just offer their hearts to you, offer their voices, offer their minds to you, Lord, confessing their sin and receiving your payment, trusting you for salvation. But Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would walk in our salvation, that we would rely on it, that the gospel would be the thing that permeates our soul, that it would give us our direction and give us our challenge to strive in each and every day. Not because we need to earn it, Lord, but because we've already been gifted it and we want it to be the declaration of our life. So have your way here this morning, Lord, in whatever fashion you have. 
We trust you. We rely on you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.